Greetings, church. I am eagerly anticipating getting back together in some fashion, uh, even this Sunday. Uh, so would you join me uh, as you're watching this uh, in prayer? Father, thank you for the work that you're doing to bring your people back together. Father, thank you for sustaining us through the season of separation and isolation that we've been experiencing. And as we continue to uh, seek to honor the laws of the government around us, help us to also honor you with the way that we use our time and the way that we use our resources the way that we uh, spend time with each other. Help us to steward our relationships well. Help us to love one another. Father, thank you for your word and the power that it has to change our hearts and to change our lives. That's what we all long for. And so as we open up this uh, new study and begin looking at some of these uh, wonderful psalms, would you give us grace to see what's really there? Would you help us to embrace these words and take them into ourselves in such a way that we are transformed. Would you, by your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, work these words into the depths of our hearts and make us different because of what we've looked at, what we've read, what we've studied, what we've sung, what we've thought about and meditated upon. Give us grace now as we open up Psalm 1. Help us, we pray, see Jesus here. Help us see ourselves and our sin and our need for him and help us to see the work that you've done to rescue us from all that ails us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to extend an invitation to you to join us uh, for a summer in the Psalms. Uh, we're going to spend the summer in the Psalms. This morning we're going to open up Psalm 1. Uh, and uh, next week, Lord willing, Pastor Ken will open up Psalm 2. Uh, we won't progress one by one through the whole book of Psalms, uh, but we will spend 13 weeks uh, together looking at selected Psalms, some of the shorter ones uh, to be sure, but we're going to take in a lot of different kinds of uh, psalms, and we want you to join us for that. And so we encourage you to uh, be reading these psalms, be reflecting on them, meditating on them, as we'll talk about even from Psalm 1. And ultimately, we, we would ask that you would be uh, diving in ever deeper and making these psalms your own as we open them up and seek to expound them and see why God has given them to us in the form that we have them. Now, as we begin to open up Psalm 1 and next Sunday, Psalm 2, I want you to view these two psalms together as an introduction to the book of Psalms. Uh, as God has given us this wonderful collection of poems, uh, Psalms 1 and 2 are here at the front end of the book for a purpose. And I believe that purpose is primarily to introduce the entire collection uh, they're almost like a preface to the book of Psalms. What we're going to see in both of these Psalms over the next two weeks is that they're not like what we tend to think of when we think of Psalms first and foremost. We think of them as prayers to God. We think of them as songs addressed to God. But these first two Psalms are not like that. They are instructive. They are teaching Psalms. Uh, psalm 1 especially is often classed as a wisdom psalm, and it instructs us in a certain way of living, as we'll see as we unpack these short uh, six verses uh, and the powerful imagery that's given to us here. 
Now, as we go through the book of Psalms, one of the things that we're going to consider is the the way that these Psalms are laid out, the structure of the Psalms and the message of the Psalms, because even in those Psalms that we're going to look at that are actual prayers to God, like the majority of them are, there's a poetic structure and there's a meaning, something there to teach us and to instruct us. And Psalms 1 and 2 should shape the way that we think about the whole book of Psalms. Everything we read in the Psalms is shaped and influenced by these first two Psalms. So what we're going to see in these first two Psalms is a certain figure. In Psalm 1, we're going to look at a portrait of a righteous man, a blessed man, as he is described here. And we're going to raise the question, who is this righteous man? And then in Psalm 2, we're going to be introduced to the anointed king, uh, the descendant of David. And Pastor Ken will open up some of those things to us next Sunday. But one of the things that we notice about Psalms 1 and 2 that's different from many psalms that we're familiar with is that there is no heading at the beginning of those psalms. Now, what I mean by heading, if you flip over to Psalm 3, I hope you have a Bible open by now, uh, Psalm 3, you can see that above where verse 1 begins, there's a heading. It's If you're reading, most English Bibles will set these headings off in a different font, or in some way they'll indicate that they're kind of separate from the actual content of the psalm, and they're usually not marked by a particular verse number. So if you look at Psalm 3, the ESV has the whole line in all caps, or small caps, technically. And the heading says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. And if you're familiar with the psalms, you know that many, many psalms have a heading like that, where we're given maybe an author's name who penned this particular poem, and maybe some circumstances uh, when he wrote the psalm. Now, I have a personal studied conviction about these headings. You see, they are a part of the Hebrew text. The earliest Hebrew manuscripts that we have access to of the Psalms contain these headings. And so that suggests to me that we should view them as in part of, as a part of the inspired scripture. And so the information that they provide, we should take into account when we study these psalms. We should pay attention when there's a historical notice about when the psalm was written. We should view that as a part of the message of the psalm, as a part of the meaning of the psalm. And so we, we need to not ignore them or skip over them. Now, many of them are not going to give us much information. Many of them are just going to tell us who wrote it, or many of them are going to give some kind of musical notation that we don't really understand. And so they don't give a lot of information all the time, but when they do, we need to take note. Now, I tell you that up front, even though Psalm 1 this week and Psalm 2 next week don't have one of these headings, because I want you to begin to read the book of Psalms maybe a little bit differently. And I want what we see here to shape the way that you read the book of Psalms. So Psalms 1 and 2 don't have a heading. That means they don't tell us who wrote them for sure. Now, about Psalm 2, we'll see next week that in the book of Acts, uh, someone quotes a line from Psalm 2 in Acts chapter 4, verse 25, and says that it is the words of David. And so we have New Testament, Spirit-inspired scripture that tells us that Psalm 2 was written by David. Now, I'm going to suggest also that Psalm 1 probably was written by David as well. 
Psalm 1 and 2 go together as a two-way introduction to this whole book. They are intended to be read together. We'll see some connections between Psalm 1 and 2. I'll point some of them out today and Perhaps Pastor Ken will point some out or remind us of some of them next week. But I want to give you one right up at the, at the beginning here that shows you that the author of these two psalms intended for them to be understood together in a certain way. And the way that we know that is by the first line of Psalm 1 matches up with the last line of Psalm 2. And so Psalms 1 and 2 are kind of, they've got brackets around them almost. This is a common feature of Hebrew poetry where a first line will be echoed in a last line of a single poem or a unit of text that is meant to be read together. And so this bracketing, the technical term often used is inclusio, or an inclusion, where you have one line that's paralleled many, many verses later by another line that matches it or echoes it in certain ways, and that teaches us that everything in between those two brackets is meant to be understood together. So if you see the first line of Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the man. Now, if you glance over to the last line of Psalm 2, the end of verse 12, you see, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so this word blessed brackets the whole uh, unit, Psalm 1 and 2 together. We have testimony from both Jews and Christians in the early church and Jews before the time of Jesus that Psalms 1 and 2 were to be read and understood together. They're very different in the way that they're structured, but they both focus in on an individual, a righteous man or a blessed man in Psalm 1, and the anointed king, the one whom God names as his son in Psalm 2. And what we can see then, just to go ahead and uh, give you the end of the matter here, uh, is that the righteous man of Psalm 1 is the king of Psalm 2. That's how we fit these two together. Now, Without further ado, let's read Psalm 1, verse, verses 1 through 6. There's six verses in Psalm 1. It's rather simple, but it's very beautiful. Many of you may have memorized Psalm 1 at one time or another, and I would challenge you, if you haven't, uh, get after it. Uh, it's a pretty easy psalm to memorize, and it is certainly worthwhile to memorize it in order not just to chalk up some knowledge in your head, but so that you might soak it into your life so that it might shape the way that you live. So let's read these words from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So if we just glance at verse 6 for just a moment at the end, we're actually highlighting the major 
understanding that should color everything that comes before. The psalm is about a man who is tempted to walk on one road, to go down one way, but instead should go down another way. So we're introduced to two roads. When you see the word way in these verses, the Hebrew word is referring literally and physically to a path or a road, a literal street or road. And so we need to think about the imagery of walking along a particular road. We're talking about a journey here. And so we're given a picture ultimately, as verse 6 makes clear, two roads. There's the right road and there's the wrong road. And the right road is the road that is walked by righteous people. And so what we're introduced to in verse 1 as a particular man who is blessed He is one who is among these righteous people who walk on the right road. But there is a wrong road as well. And so the psalmist contrasts these two roads, the right road from the wrong road. And if you think about that concept, if you're wanting to get to the right destination, if you've got a particular destination in mind, a place you want to go, and you you end up getting on the wrong road, you're never going to get to the right place. If you want to get to the right place, you've got to be on the right road. And this psalm lays out what that looks like. So let's consider verses 1 through 3 first. Psalms 1, Psalm 1, 1 to 3 describes the right road, the right road. It begins with, blessed is the man. Now, we talked about this word in one of our devotionals a few weeks ago, this word that's translated blessed. It's the Hebrew word ashrei, and it is an interjection of sorts. The best way, I think, to bring it over into English is in the English word congratulations. Just think about the ways that we use the word congratulations. We congratulate someone when they win a race. We congratulate someone when they win a prize, whether they earned that prize or whether it was randomly awarded to them. We congratulate someone when they have a baby or when they find out they're pregnant. And so congratulations is this word that is a, is a way of assessing somebody's circumstances. It's a way of evaluating a person's circumstances and saying, you know what, your circumstances are really good. It's a way of saying, you're in a good spot. You're in a good place. Things are going well for you. And that's what this Hebrew term seems to mean whenever we see blessed is the man or blessed are those or blessed are all or blessed is a certain person. That usually is this Hebrew construction that's indicating congratulations to the man who is then described this way. And then the circumstances are usually described. What what makes this person to be congratulated. Why should we congratulate this person? And very often, the circumstances that are described or the situation that's described is somewhat counterintuitive. We would not naturally look at that person's life or situation and say, congratulations. We we might, in a situation like this, we might say, okay, you're on the right road, you're headed to the right destination, so congratulations. But very often, the circumstances are going to be counterintuitive. And so what we're going to see here is that the right road, being on the right road and walking down the right road is often fraught with significant difficulty. And it's got obstacles. It's got pitfalls on either side. It's got potholes in the road itself that need to be avoided. It's hard. It's got challenges. It's got difficulties. And so when we see one, someone walking down that hard road, An observer might not look at that person and say, you're in a good place. 
Instead, they might say, look at how hard things are for you. Don't, want you. don't you want to get off that road and go to a different place and do a different thing? Don't you want to have a different situation for yourself? And the reality is the scriptures define why a person would be congratulated in that situation. And so we have to allow the scriptures to shape our thinking and shape our assessment of our own situation and the situation of others so that the reasons we would congratulate someone are biblical. They're, they're shaped by the truth. Because very often what we see with our eyes is not reflective of reality. We don't see the real situation. We don't see the real reasons that are there for a person to be congratulated, that their situation really is good, even though it might seem to our perception and our senses that it's bad because there's suffering or hardship or challenge or difficulty. But this psalm is going to describe the reality for us, and to say this man is to be congratulated for the way that he goes. Now, I want us to make sure that we get this, so I'm going to do this a little bit differently. I'm going to skip down to verse 2, because verse 1 begins, blessed is the man, congratulations to the man, and then it describes what he's not like, what he's not doing. But verse 2 then gives us the positive reason why this man is to be congratulated. He is to be congratulated ultimately because he is delighting in and talking about God's word. Look at verse 2 again. So starting in verse 1, blessed is the man, and then skip to verse 2. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the man is to be congratulated because of his posture toward and his treatment of and his attitude about God's law, the law of Yahweh. Now, the Hebrew word translated law here is the word Torah, Torah. And Torah is not a strict equivalent to the English word law. When we read the word law, we think legalistic ideas. We think there's legislation that commands us to do certain things and not to do other things. There are commands and there are prohibitions. That's law. And that makes it really difficult for us conceptually to think, how could someone delight in the reality that their God tells them what to do and what not to do? Certainly there must be more to it than that. And there is. The Hebrew word Torah comes from a verb that simply means to instruct. The basic meaning of Torah is the instruction of Yahweh, the instruction of Yahweh. And this instruction, this Torah, became the primary label for the first five books of the scriptures. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That would have been David's Bible, if you think about it. He might have also had Joshua and Judges, perhaps, uh, but Primarily, he had Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books, what we now refer to often as the Torah. The law is how we often say it in English. But again, we have to remember that if we think about the contents of Genesis through Deuteronomy, it's certainly not all legislation. Yes, there are commands and prohibitions. There is a legal code in the middle of the Torah, but that's not all it is. I mean, if you think about it, you don't get commandments as a legal code until Exodus chapter 20. So the whole book of Genesis, 50 chapters, plus 19 chapters of the book of Exodus is all narrative, largely, telling the story of how God created the universe, the story of how God interacted with the world he had created after it fell into rebellion and sin and brokenness. 
That's all story. That's a narrative. That's instruction where we learn about what God has done in the past. We learn about God's character. And then we also get this legislation, this legal code in the midst of it that governs the relationship uh, between the people of Israel and Yahweh, their God. Exodus chapter 20, on through the end of the book of Exodus. And you get some narrative in there as well. You get the story of the golden calf being built and worshipped and destroyed. And you get the story of the tabernacle being constructed. And that's how the book of Exodus ends. The book of Leviticus is largely legislation. Do this, don't do that. Don't do that. But you also get some stories in there. The, the punishment and death of Aaron's two sons for worshipping unlawfully, for breaking the law. Uh, and then you go into numbers and you get genealogies as well as a story about them wandering in the wilderness. And you get a little bit of legislation along the way. But mostly, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the Torah, is actually a story that includes the laws that were established for the people of Israel with their God in the midst of that story. All of that is meant to instruct God's people. It is Torah in the sense of instruction. So we take all of that in place, and what's being described here is congratulations to the man. No matter what his life looks like, no matter what suffering he goes through, no matter what obstacles or opposition he faces, he is to be congratulated if he delights in Yahweh's instruction. He's talking about the scriptures. At this point, if David's writing this, David's Bible is five books long, maybe six, maybe seven. That's it. But the point is the written instruction of Yahweh is what the blessed man, the man to be congratulated, takes delight in. He rejoices in it. He delights in it. And out of his delight, he meditates on this instruction day and night, all the time. He meditates on it day and night. Now, what does this mean? What is meditation? This is very important. When we think about meditation in English, we think of something that's done silently in our minds. We think of mulling something over in our heads. We think about thinking through certain things. So people sometimes describe meditating on Scripture as though you, you memorize a portion of Scripture or maybe you read something in your devotional in a, in, a, in, a, in a day in the morning and then you write down a verse or something that stood out to you on a card and then you take that card with you. You put it on your dashboard. You take it with you to work. You go with it and you keep reading it throughout the day and you kind of think about it as you walk through your day. That's not a bad thing to do. That can be a very helpful way of reflecting on Scripture, but that's not what this word means. The Hebrew word translated meditate here and in most places that you see it in the Old Testament is a verbal word. It's a verbal word. It means to talk about. It means to mutter. It means to talk quietly in a certain sense, and so it very much could be the reality of talking to yourself. Now, if you think about the ancient world, ancient Hebrews, and even up into Jesus's time in the New Testament period, people didn't read silently. That's our basic posture in the West, in Western modern society. We read mentally. We read silently. But in the ancient world, that was basically unheard of. If they were going to read, whether in private devotion or in a, a, a Jewish synagogue gathering or at the temple, the scriptures were to be read aloud. 
That, that goes all the way into Jesus's day as well. The scriptures are to be read aloud. And so here the idea is that the person who delights in the instruction of Yahweh is going to talk to himself about it, read it out loud so that he hears it, so that he sees it with his eyes and hears it with his ears and even tangibly touches it with his tongue, speaks it with his mouth. There's a physicality to this. Now, the word meditate is going to appear in Psalm 2 again, but be translated very differently. If you'll glance down to Psalm 2, verse 1, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? That word translated plot is the same word. So think about bad guys, villains, getting together in a little huddle and plotting together. They're kind of secretly whispering and talking about their the, the, re, the ways that they're going to harm someone. That's this word. That's what's being described. And so the idea is not just that you, you, you're thinking about it in your head. That's a good thing to do. But here it goes further than that. It needs to come out of your mouth, both in private and in public and with other people. So the idea is that you'd be talking about the scriptures all the time. That's the reality that we're talking about here. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7 talks about teaching, instructing your children when you lie down, when you rise up, when you walk on the way, all the time. That's what's being depicted here. We see this uh, described for us. If you remember back to the book of Joshua, Joshua was commanded to do this and note the outcome of this reality. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8, this book of the law, this book of Torah shall not depart from your mouth. Now think about that for just a moment. Think about what that metaphor means. This book of the Torah, of God's instruction, shall not leave your mouth. What does that mean? Well, it means you should never stop talking about it. It should be in your mouth all the time, that you're talking about it all the time. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it. Same word as in Psalm 1. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that, here's the outcome, the purpose, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So Joshua is commanded to read the scriptures, to talk about the scriptures, and the result, if he'll do that, is that he will be obedient to those scriptures. You see, if you don't delight in God's word and you never talk about God's word, then you will not obey God's word. Delighting in produces talking about that then produces living out in obedience. And so if you want the key to doing God's word, to being obedient, it starts with your affections. It starts with loving God's word. Now think about what this call is. This call is that you would delight in all of God's instruction. So that means Leviticus chapter 11 and the food laws. Can you find delight in reading about unclean and clean animals that the people of Israel thousands of years ago were commanded not to eat? And some of them they were allowed to eat. Can you find delight in that store, in that legislation? Can you find delight in the Old Testament scriptures as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus? That's a part of the instruction of the Lord for you now. And the call is that you would find your delight in all of it. Whatever God says in this book should be cherished and delighted in by God's people. And if we don't, how could we ever think that we would ever obey what God says? If we don't delight to hear God speak, 
who won't respond with faith and obedience to what he says. Psalm 119.11 gives the other side of the picture. Psalm 119.11, the psalmist says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so the psalmist there recognizes that God's word inside me enables me, empowers me to resist sin. And that's very key to obeying what God says in the scriptures. So that's the look at the blessed man. He is to be congratulated because he delights in God's instruction and he meditates on it. He talks about it all the time. That's the man to be congratulated. No matter what suffering he's going through, no matter what bad things might be happening, no matter what his life looks like, if he is delighting in God's word and talking about it all the time, he is to be congratulated. So let's go back and look at the rest of verse 1, where the psalmist describes uh, what Runrider has said called the progressive paralysis of evil. The progressive paralysis of evil. Notice the movement here. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the seat of, in the in the way of sinners, the path of sinners, the sinner's road, if you will, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So notice at first he's walking in the counsel of the wicked and then he's he's and then he stops walking and then he takes his stand in the way or on the road of sinners so he parks it he stops moving and he stands with sinners and then finally he sits down and dwells permanently in the seat of scoffers and there's also a progression here that that leads up to the scoffer. The scoffer, you might recognize that word from the book of Proverbs. It occurs many times in the book of Proverbs. And what you might not realize from the book of Proverbs is that there are different kinds of fools described in the book of Proverbs. There are four or five different kinds of fools described. And the scoffer is the worst one. The scoffer is uh, what one writer called a missionary of wickedness. A missionary of wickedness. He's a Mr. Know-it-all who only counts on his own thinking and his own reason. He doesn't listen to the advice of other people. He simply judges based on his own human perception. He won't listen to God, and he won't listen to the righteous. He won't listen to good advice. He does what seems good in his own eyes. And then he scoffs, he mocks, he opposes righteousness and wisdom and God. And so to sit in the seat of scoffers is a very bad place to settle down. It means you're settling down to dwell permanently in a position of opposition against God. And there may be even more than that. In the ancient world, the posture of the teacher was to sit. And so the idea, idea may be here that once a person is walking in the counsel of the wicked, taking their advice and living their life based on their advice, and then they take their stand with the sinners, they kind of settle into that reality, eventually they're going to sit down and they're going to start teaching other people to oppose God and be disobedient to him. That is the progression of paralysis here that the psalmist describes here. And so the man to be congratulated is the man who avoids all of that and stays away from all of that. So verse 3, then, he paints a picture for us. And isn't it a beautiful picture? He gives us a, a simile, technically, as to what this man, the man to be congratulated, the righteous man, is like. He's like a tree 
Now, the point of this image, it might be a little bit unclear. I'm going to try to unpack it for you so that you can see it. But the point is God's grace is determinative. Let me show you that from this image that he paints here. God's grace is determinative. So the question is, how do you become a man like this? How do you become a person like this who is to be congratulated? How do you become a righteous person? That's the question. And the answer is, God's grace is determinative. So this person is like a tree planted by streams of water. Planted. The Hebrew word used here is a word for transplanted. It's the idea of uh, this is not a natural growth. This is not like a tree that's just out in a forest somewhere and it just grows of its own accord. This is something that a farmer or a gardener has purposefully moved from one place to another so that it might thrive. So who does that? Well, this is what we might look at as a divine passive, planted by God, by streams of water. And so the, impl- the implication here is that if you want to be a tree, like a tree, if you want to be the blessed man that's described here, God's grace must do it. God's grace must take you from where you're born naturally and put you in a different place. That's the picture. Planted where? By streams of water. What do the streams of water represent? The Torah of Yahweh, the instruction of Yahweh. That's the nourishment. That's the empowering. That's what makes this tree, this person, fruitful and productive. He's planted by streams of water by God, by God's grace. And when he's planted there, he will draw nourishment from those streams of water, from the word of God. And he will yield the tree will yield its fruit in its season. Now notice two things about that. First, the tree doesn't yield its fruit 365 days a year. The tree doesn't yield fruit year round. The tree yields its fruit in its season. Well, who determines that? That also is determined by God's grace. The production of fruit is a result of the work of God's grace in a person's life. That's what makes a tree fruitful. But notice that it's not perpetually fruitful. It's fruitful in its season. And so God is the one who determines when you bear fruit and how much fruit you bear and the quality of the fruit that you bear. And so it's normal for us to experience times of dryness, times where we're not really gaining benefit from the streams of water. It's normal in the Christian life to go through seasons where we don't bear fruit. And sometimes those seasons can be prolonged, can't they? Sometimes those seasons can be so prolonged that people might look at our lives and not be able to tell that we are a tree planted by streams of water. We may look very unhealthy during those seasons. We have no control over that, brothers and sisters. Our responsibility that's implied in this passage is to actively draw from the streams of water. But it is God who determines the quality, the amount, and the timing of our production of fruit. That's part of the point here. Its leaf doesn't wither, though. If a tree's leaves wither, that's a sign of death. And for the genuine believer, from the person who really is rooted by streams of water, the leaves don't wither. Death does not overcome the tree. It may not bear fruit all the time, but it doesn't die. It doesn't experience death. It experiences life. At the last line of verse 3, he steps out of the metaphor from the tree here. And he says, in all that he does, he prospers. 
Now, what kind of prosperity, what kind of success is being described here? Well, that goes back to the second thing that I forgot to mention about the fruit bearing in its season. When a tree bears fruit, it doesn't bear fruit for itself, right? The tree doesn't benefit from the fruit that it produces. The fruit benefits other people, benefits people. People come and pick the fruit and eat it or sell it or use it for their own benefit. And so the fruit that's being described here, the prosperity that's being described here is benefiting other people, doing good deeds that benefit other people. Many people take this verse out of context and they see it as a promise for prosperity, material wealth. But it says nothing of the kind here. The success that's being driven after here is the success of good deeds that benefit other people. That's what a fruitful, healthy tree is all about. Produces fruit that benefits others. And so that's the measure that we're supposed to look for here. The man to be congratulated, the righteous man, is a man that bears fruit that benefits others, does good deeds to benefit others. Now, let me give you one more reason why I know that this prosperity that's pro promised here is not about you're never going to get sick, you're never going to experience uh, monetary uh, failure, you might uh, you're never going to lose a job or experience uh, relational discord in your marriages or in your relationships. And I'm going to go ahead and spoil the ending of the message for you here. But the righteous man that's being described here, the, the man to be congratulated, is ultimately Jesus. It is Jesus, ultimately, who, who uh, fulfills this description absolutely completely. He is the one who is being described here ultimately. What kind of success did Jesus experience? Well, we could go to Isaiah 53, a prophetic text which paints a picture of the suffering servant, the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh who was going to come. And Isaiah 53 verses 10 and 11 says this, Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Same word as in Psalm 1, 3. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So Jesus' success, Jesus, who certainly delighted in the instruction of Yahweh and meditated on it day and night, he, who was certainly like a tree planted by streams of water, he, who certainly bore fruit in its season and was prosperous, successful in all that he did, how did he experience that success? He experienced it through suffering and death. He experienced success. He accomplished the will of the Lord, the will of God in his life by going through suffering and ultimately giving his life as a sacrifice for all of us who can only be righteous by his accounting us righteous. What we see in Isaiah 53, 11, he makes many to be accounted righteous through his death, through his suffering. 
How is it that the will of Yahweh prospers in his hand? If he's going to die, how does he see his offspring? How does he experience success? How is he satisfied? How is he going to see after he's dead? Well, he rises from the dead. That's how. That's how. And so the pathway, the road that Jesus walked, the right road was a road paved with suffering and ultimately death for others. The fruit that he produced, the success, the prosperity that he accomplished benefited other people, ultimately you and me, so that we can become a part of this congregation of righteous people. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Back to Psalm 1. So in verses 1 through 3 describe the wrong, the right road. Verses 4 and 5 tell us about the wrong road, the wrong road. Verse 4 is very strong in its contrast in Hebrew. It simply says, not so the wicked. Not so the wicked. What does he mean? They are not to be congratulated. They do not delight in the instruction of Yahweh. They do not meditate on God's instruction day and night. They are not like a tree planted by streams of water. They do not prosper in everything that they do. Not so wicked people. And then he gives a comparison of what they are like. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff is rootless, lifeless, leafless, fruitless, and ultimately worthless. They have, chaff is in the process of winnowing. They would allow their grain or their wheat to pile up, and then they would put a pitchfork in it, throw it up in the air, and the lightest breeze would blow the husks, the chaff, that's not valuable for eating, would blow it away while the heavy, uh, the heavy stalks would fall to the ground in a pile so that they could gather them up to make bread out of them or go sell them at the marketplace. The chaff is just blown away. It's a picture of God's judgment. It's a picture that comes up many times in the Old Testament where the wicked or sinful people are compared to chaff. They have no root. They don't go down by streams of water. They don't go down anywhere. They are lifeless. They're dead. There's no life in them. They don't have leaves that won't liver, wither. They don't have leaves at all. They are fruitless. They don't bear fruit of any kind. They do no good to anybody else. And ultimately, they are worthless. Now, when we think about wicked people, we think about, well, can't wicked people do good things? Can't they benefit other people? So a wicked person, somebody who hates Jesus could be a wealthy person that gives a million dollars to some charity to benefit needy people. So isn't that a case where a, a wicked person has done good? No, it is not. It is a case where God has used the resources of a wicked person to do good to others. You see, anything that's rightly called good in this world ultimately comes from God, and especially when that good comes through or from a person who doesn't follow Jesus. God uses even wicked people and wicked resources to accomplish good and to bring benefit to other people. But the wicked in themselves do not get credit for that. They don't accomplish good. They don't bring benefit to other people's lives. God does. Chaff is an image, as I said, that's used repeatedly in the Old Testament. Let me remind you also of another figure, John the Baptist, who referred to chaff in some of his preaching. Matthew chapter 3, verse 12. His, he's talking about Jesus here, the one who would come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. We'll see this in just a moment, but the destination of the wicked is ultimately final judgment, eternal punishment in hell. And that's what John the Baptist announces here. So if they're like chaff, then in verse 5, instead of to be congratulated like the righteous man, they are to be condemned. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. He's talking about the final judgment. He's talking about the, the time when the wicked will stand before God to give an account of their lives. He's talking about after they are raised from the dead, they will face God, body and soul together, reunited in a an ugly resurrection, it seems, at what we know of from Revelation as the great white throne. And they will not stand in the judgment. They will not rise in the judgment is literally what the Hebrew says. And what it means is they will not be able to stand up and defend themselves on judgment day for their wickedness. They will not be able to stand uh, and defend themselves. Sinners, nor sinners, second line of verse 5, will, will not be able to stand in the congregation of the righteous. Now here he paints a picture that shows that the righteous will undergo a judgment as well. The righteous people will also face God and give an account of their lives, but they will gather together in a congregation that will survive the judgment. There is only a congregation of the righteous who will survive the judgment because of the sacrifice of the truly righteous man, the suffering servant who made many to be accounted righteous by carrying our guilt and dying on a cross to pay for that guilt. That's the only reason there is a congregation of the righteous who will survive judgment day. The wicked will not be among them. They will be cast out, sentenced to eternal punishment in hell. So we come then to the end in verse 6. We see the two roads summarized. For Yahweh knows the path or the way of the righteous people. The path of the righteous. Yahweh knows it. Now if you're reading the NIV or some other versions, you might read something like Yahweh cares for or Yahweh watches over the way of the righteous. And that's uh, that's okay as far as what it means, but it is the literal word for knowing, and I think that's significant, and I like that the ESV retains the word knows, because I think the reality is bigger than simply him caring for us along the way. As we walk, as the righteous people walk on the right road, God watches over us and cares for us and protects us and ensures that we're going to make it to the destiny, to the right place. That's true, but I think by saying it this way, he's actually saying more than that. Yahweh knows the righteous road, the road that righteous people will walk on, because two reasons. One, he made it. He created it. You see, righteousness is defined simply as what conforms to the character of God. He defines righteousness. What is righteous? Well, whatever God says is righteous. He defines it. And so ultimately, how does he know the way of the righteous? Well, he made it. He determines what is righteous. But secondly, and in a prophetic sense, and so we as Christians can look back and read this messianically. The whole book of Psalms needs to be read messianically. All of it points to Jesus. Jesus told us so. 
And so we need to be looking for those ways that these Psalms point to Jesus. And so this one does, and I've already given you to, given it away, that the righteous man, the man to be congratulated, ultimately is Jesus, the Messiah, the suffering servant who would come. And so Yahweh knows the road that righteous people walk on, not just because he made it, but also because he walked it himself. He walked it himself. He knows the way experientially because he walked it as a man in the incarnation, in the person of the Son of God. Jesus walked this road ahead of us. And so he is the one who knows it because he made it, but also because he walked it as a man. But the second line needs to be noted. The way of the wicked, the road that wicked people walk on, will perish. It's a word that can mean to be lost or to be destroyed even. But if you think about it in literal terms, to understand the significance of the metaphor, it's talking about a road that's going to be lost. It's going to perish. It's going to go astray. And so this road is not going to end up in the good place that a wicked person might expect. It goes astray. It's the description of a road that you're walking along and you think it's going to be go to one place, but then suddenly it just drops off a cliff and the wicked are just going to keep walking. It reminded me of a proverb, Proverbs 14, 12, which is actually repeated in Proverbs 16, 25. There is a way, a road, that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. That's what the psalmist is reflecting on. The road that wicked people walk down, the way that they're living their life, that's what the metaphor means, will result in death, eternal death, eternal punishment in hell. So as we come to our conclusion, I've already hinted that this points to Jesus, and so let's consider Jesus and the two roads. So I've already answered the first question here. Who is this man that's being talked about here? This man is Jesus. Three times in the book of Acts, Jesus is referred to simply as the righteous one. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he is called Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the Son of God, the anointed king that we'll focus on in Psalm 2 next week. But then Jesus also talked about these two roads, and I want to reflect on that for just a couple of minutes. The, the road, the, these two roads that the psalmist describes, Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus speaks about these two roads. And he first talks about the wrong road, and he calls it Rumi Road. The wrong road is Rumi Road. So he spoke of these two roads, and the wrong road is called Rumi Road. I'll show you that in just a moment. But first, at the beginning of Matthew 7, 13, he calls all people everywhere to get on the right road. The road is accessed through a gate. So Jesus says at the beginning of Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate. Enter the right road. And he means enter the kingdom of heaven. Enter eternal life by the narrow gate. But then he backs up to describe a different gate and the wrong road that flows out of the wrong gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. So Jesus describes this wide gate. And then he says the way, and this is the Greek word that is the road, literally a street. And so he was tempting to say this is easy street. 
because our English Bibles, most of them say the way is easy. But the Greek word actually means uh, spacious, roomy, and so roomy road. And so the idea is that think literally for a minute. Think physically. He's talking about a road that's wide. It's spacious. It's got lots of room on it. There, it's not crowded. You won't bump into people along the road, along this road. There's plenty of room for you and all your friends. There's so much space for you to do whatever you want. Your righteousness, your rights, your freedoms will never be impinged on on this road. You can do whatever you want on this road. There's abundant space, abundant room, and no one will bother you on this road. It's wide, spacious, roomy, and many enter by this gate, and many walk down this path. Why? Because again, it looks so spacious. It's so inviting. And so many people can fit on this road. Many people can fit, and they won't feel crowded. They can get their own space, do their own thing, be fully autonomous and independent. And so Jesus warns, when you see that reality, and if that's the reality you want, and you find yourself clinging to that sense of, I want my rights, my independence, I want to be able to do what I want, beware. You may be on the wrong road. You may be on roomy road, which Jesus says has a destination. It leads to destruction. It looks so inviting but it's destiny is what you need to be thinking about. And so many people walking on that road are not thinking about where it leads. It leads to destruction. What about the right road? That's Matthew 7, 14. The right road is tribulation trail. Tribulation trail, Matthew 7, 14. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The way, the gate is narrow. It's only wide enough for one person to go in at a time. Each person must enter this, this gate alone, in, individually. That's the way it is. It's the gate itself is only narrow enough for you to get your shoulders in. One person at a time. And then once you get on the other side, the way, the road is hard. The Greek word that's translated hard there is actually the, the word we get tribulation from. Uh, when we looked at Revelation chapter 1 back on Easter earlier this year, we talked about the term for tribulation and we talked about how it has a literal physical meaning of being squeezed, being pressed, being squished, tightly pushed like a vice uh, crushing you. That's the word that Jesus uses here. This road is tribulation trail. It is hard, as the ESV says. There are obstacles on the road. There are ditches on either side of the road. There are potholes in the way, and there are enemies and obstacles on this road that make it very difficult. There is suffering on this road. It doesn't look appealing. Don't think when you become a Christian, when you begin to follow Jesus, don't think that suddenly your life is going to become all simple and easy. It will become good, but it won't become simple and easy. The scriptures never, ever, ever promise that. 
Jesus is very clear and very repetitive, repetitive on this point. It's hard to miss his point. I don't know how so many people do. The way of living the living eternal life that starts now and goes on forever, on this side of death and on this side of Jesus' return, the life is full of tribulation. There's no escape from it promised for us, folks. Tribulation is the normal Christian life. Tribulation trail is the right road. And so if you're experiencing stress because of your faith, if you're experiencing pressure because of your faith, that might just be an indicator that you're in the right spot, going the right way to the right place. And that's what we want. We want to be on the right road, going to the right place. Now, the beautiful thing about this, as I said earlier, Jesus has walked this trail for us. And if it, if it was tribulation for him, we should expect the same. Jesus walked this road for us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 talks about Jesus and describes him as the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's what the ESV says. The New King James Version says the author and finisher of our faith. The 2011 edition of the NIV says it a little bit differently. It says that Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of faith. And I like that term pioneer. I, I took a class in graduate school working through the Greek text of the book of Hebrews. And I remember a class period where we had a conversation in class about this verse and how it should be translated. And I don't remember whether it was the professor or one of my peers who suggested this, but it's always stuck with me since then. Someone suggested that it should be translated trailblazer, the trailblazer of our faith. And I like that. It stuck with me. I think that's the right idea. Yahweh, the Lord, knows the road of the righteous because he walked it himself. He blazed it. He walked it perfectly. He cut the trail ahead of us. He's the only person who's ever, as a human being, walked this road faithfully all the way to the end without sin. He made it to the destination. And the destination for him was a crown of thorns and a cross of wood and an, an a shameful death in place of other sinful people so that we could be counted righteous too, so that we could then walk the same trail that he did, so that we could take up our crosses and follow him along this trail. Tribulation trail, folks, is where you want to live. It's where you want to walk. It's where you want to go. It's the right road going to the right place. And it is hard. It is pressure-filled, stressful, and challenging. But it's so good. It's so good. And the way ends in life, eternal life. Life in fellowship with Jesus and in fellowship with all of the rest of the righteous forever and ever and ever and ever in a renewed creation. There will come a point, there will come a point where the trail will, come, will be gone. Tribulation trail does have an end. In the new creation, there won't be any tribulation. In the new creation, there won't be any hostility or suffering. Instead, the congregation of righteous people will live full of joy, continuing to delight in the instruction of Yahweh forever and ever and ever and ever. So the call is that we would right now, right now, dedicate our lives, dedicate our energies to delighting in the instruction of Yahweh and meditating on it day and night. 
talking about it all the time, drawing strength from it like a tree, a fruit-bearing tree. And so the question on the table, here's some questions to ponder as we conclude. Are you on the hard road that leads to life? How do you know? Are you being rooted and established in God's word? Are you reading the Bible, loving the Bible, seeking to obey the Bible? Does God's word shape your thinking? Is your life bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Do you see evidence of God's grace at work in your life, transforming your desires, your words, and your behaviors? Let's pray that it is. Father, thank you for your life-giving word. Thank you for the instruction that you've provided in this book. Thank you, Father, for all that you have done to secure our salvation. We are sinners. We fail in so many ways. We fail to delight in your word the way that we should. We fail to talk about it when we could. We fail to obey it as we should. So, Father, would you help us? Would you continue to work in us to bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives day by day? Would you motivate us and challenge us and stir us to be in your word, seeking you in your word? We want to hear your voice above all the voices in the world. Help us to avoid at all costs the way, the the counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners and the seed of scoffers. Help us to reject that way of living and that wrong road. Call us to yourself, O Lord. Give us grace as we enter into a new season. Help us to have hope in you. Help us to trust what we see in your word. Help us to to obey it. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.